0: Uh, last week we talked about 1 Samuel 4, right? And through the terrible carnage of that story, we were able to determine a pattern of sorts, right? We saw that um, the, uh, the Israelites marched out to battle. They didn't consult God. They didn't ask Him what to do, as they should have. Uh, so they, they, that was step one. Step two, they got, they got beaten, right? Bad, right? And they came back, and the elders were like, why is God fighting against us? Which was right, which was good, but then they didn't Carry that to the next logical step of what do we need to do here? What's wrong here? Right? So that leads us to the third step. They, they didn't identify why God was fighting against them. There was no examination. Um, uh, they didn't uh, sanctify themselves. And that caused a problem because that led to step four, which meant they, they used an artificial means of securing God, right? They said, Let's go get the ark. We'll go get that little box covered in gold, and then God has to fight for us, right? And they went out there and marched out there. And you remember that led to step five, which was uh, perverted worship, right? They brought the ark in. There was a loud cry. And the Israelites were like ah! They stomped on the ground. And the, the Philistines were about a mile away, and they heard it, and they got freaked out. Um, uh, but they still ended up moving we to step six, which was defeat, right? And we saw lots of defeat there. The Israelites, the Israelites were defeated. There was a great slaughter. Phineas and Hophni were killed. The ark of the Lord was stolen. Eli, the high priest, when he hears about it, freaks out, falls over backwards, breaks his neck. Uh, Phineas' wife, when she hears about it, goes into a stress-induced labor and uh, dies after having the baby. And we hear the name Ichabod, right? which means no glory, or where is the glory? And those tragic stories gave us just one little glimpse at Eli and Phineas' wife and where their hearts truly were, uh, in that they were crushed, that the glory of God had left. Sure they were worried about her husband and his children but the main primary thing was their heart was with God and so we got to see that beautiful ending to uh, their lives there today uh, we're gonna jump into Samuel 5 we're gonna do 5 and 6 uh, which is maybe why I, I went a little longer bit off a big chunk here um, or maybe I just talked too much one of the two uh, but we're gonna look at first Samuel we're gonna start off in first Samuel 5 uh, if you ran out of the door today and you didn't grab the Bible Feel free to shoot up your hand and we can grab one for you. Everybody got one? We're good? Okay, so we're going to read uh, 1 Samuel 5. We're only going to go verses 1 to 12 today uh, because I don't want to make you stand up while I read two chapters of the Bible It's awkward. Um, But if you would, please stand for the reading of uh, God's Word. We're going to read 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 12. Now the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. When they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. (laughs) Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod. To this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, and both the Ashdodites and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, "The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us, and on Dagon our God." Uh, So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, "What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel?" And they said, "Let the ark of the God of Israel." He brought around the Gath, and they brought the ark of the God of Israel around. And after they brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion, and he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God to Ekron, and as the ark of the God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, they brought the ark of God of Israel around to kill us, to kill our people. And they said, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel, let it return to its own place, that it will not kill us and our people. For there was deadly confusion throughout the city The hand of God was very heavy there And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven Let's pray Lord we pray as Hannah prayed In 1 Samuel chapter 2 My heart exalts in the Lord My horn is exalted in the Lord My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies Because I rejoice in your salvation There is no one holy like the Lord Indeed there is no one besides you Nor is there any rock like our God Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Amen. Maybe see. I got a new uh, toy here. Oh, there we go. So we're gonna be able to uh, jump around in the slides there. So that should be fun. So like I mentioned last week, we saw Israel fall apart. The high priest and his family were judged. Uh, we saw the Israelites trying to use the Ark like a fortune cookie right and uh, they took it into battle and if you really look at that story you can kind of see how it it's kind of like we were uh, those of us that grew up in the church right we, we grew up around church they grew up around the ark they were used to worshiping around the ark they were used to being in the presence of the ark and so it kind of became uh, trivial to them and if we're careful church can be that way right we grow up in church we're used to the sounds and the songs and the, and the, the sights and the um, even Paco's got a, a stack of uh, old hymnals in his uh, office there. And you open that thing up, and I take it, it smells just like when I was a little kid. You know. When I was a little kid, we all had hymnals, and we didn't have this fancy little, uh, Back when I was your boy. And, uh, <laughs> you, you can smell it, right? It smells like a hymnal, right? We're familiar with it. But the Philistines hadn't grown up anywhere near the ark or the worship of Yahweh. And as we look at chapter 5, we're going to watch the Philistines' reaction to the ark. And we're going to see that their reaction is not that different from people that don't know Jesus today. The world, our culture, our leaders, they often think they've defeated God, right? Whether through legislation, or cultural pressure, or executive order, the world thinks that it has defeated God from time to time. But we serve a God with heavy hands. OK, not much response there. Uh, how about, we serve a terrible God? No. It's a little hard to rally around without some explanation, right? We'll get there. Don't worry. What's important to see now is that in chapter 5, the world thinks it has defeated God. And then we'll move to the first half of chapter 6, and we'll see what happens when the world thinks that they've won. And suddenly they realize that God is a terrible God. And don't worry. I'll get to the explanation. When our world goes against the might of God, they realize they are our gnat attacking a rex Right? <laughs> so they seek to appease him. They seek to find ways to shield themselves from the wrath that God brings against his enemies. And in doing so, we get to our final point. We see that in the last half of chapter 6, false religion props that up. Something that looks, and sounds, and smells like true worship, but at the core is empty and false and powerless. So three things to see today, right? The world thinks it defeats God, but God is terrible. The world, uh, so this world seeks to appease him. And then false religion props that up. So let's get back to the Philistines. Okay, we know at the time uh, pagan religions relied heavily on regional gods, right? So uh, they would go in and, and if you stole another god, it was like you stole their land, you stole the, the god that they worship, and they would bring their, the idol back and then now it would be their god, right? And uh, they believed uh, in the plurality of gods. They believed there was a god for many different things. And, and so what we see now doesn't surprise us or shouldn't surprise us. When we look at verse 1, it says, now the Philistines took the ark of the god and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. All right, I've got a pretty little map there for you there. So, and I remember the laser pointer today, look at that, huh? (laughs) So there's the battle there, and uh, there's Shiloh, and there's the battle where they had, they lost the Ark, and they decided to take it all the way down to Ashdod. And then they're gonna take it to Gath, and then Ekron, and then eventually it'll end up in Kirish, uh, Jermin, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that, right? So then the Philistines took the Ark of the God, and they brought it to the house of Dagon, and set it, there you go, there's Dagon, set it by Dagon. Okay, there, there's, um, some people debate whether he was a fish god or a wheat god, and that's because, if you remember, Hebrew was written, the Masoretic text that we have, doesn't have vowels in it, right? So uh, the word for fish uh, is DG, and the word for wheat is DGN, right? So they, they, uh, they're not sure if he's a fish god or a wheat god, but what we do know is he was a false god, right? And um, the Philistines believed that this god uh, help them defeat the Israelites you remember when Samson was captured they took him to the temple of Dagon right that's the one he pushed down and killed uh, several Philistines that day so that's Dagon uh, and they take him in and they set him next to Dagon right and, and what they're saying there is our God defeated this God but we're not going to just like chuck the box because we don't want to take this god off right because he he could still cause some trouble right so we're gonna we're going bring him in and he can be subservient to Dagon so they set him next to the statue there. And then uh, verse 3. When the asteroids arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen to his face in the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. You know how my mind works, right? <laughs> I see it. I see it. They come in, they bring the ark in, they set it down next to Dagon, right? They have a big party. Woo! We won, we won! And they go to bed. And the next morning, here come Frank and George, right? Frank and George are responsible for opening up the Temple there, and they unlock the doors, they light up all the stuff, they sweep up a little bit. And uh, George walks in and he, and he sees Dagon on his face in front of the, the ark there. He leans out and says, Frank, did you knock over the idol? Frank leans back and says, I didn't knock over no Dagon idol. Uh-huh. You see why I it, right? Yeah. George says, How do you know it was Dagon? You didn't knock it over. I, I see it in my head. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My wife didn't like it very much in the first place. So. <laughs> Isaiah had something to say about this, right? Isaiah 44, 14. Um, he, I've read a portion of this to you before, but it bears repeating, right? In Isaiah 44:14. 14, he's writing about the folly of the idol maker here he's in, in, in idol worship. And he starts in verse 14. He says, surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn, so he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats the meat, and he roasts the roast, and he's satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I've seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, "'Deliver me, for you are my God.' They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it, and then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The world does this too, right? We have our cars, we have our houses, we have our money, anything. Sometimes even our spouses, we can turn them into an idol, right? And when it falls over, we walk over and we pick it up. For it has no power of its own. The deceived heart can be turned aside. The ruler of this earth has blinded the world. And so, looking back at that Dagon idol, uh, verse four, but when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon, both the palms of his hands, were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore neither the, the priests of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. It was an execution. Military execution, right? Back in those days, when when countries would war, they'd go in and they'd find the king, and and sometimes if they were really brutal, they'd chop their hands off, and it was a, it was a symbol, right? What are you gonna do without hands, right? How are you gonna scratch your nose? Can you imagine? you didn't do that. You don't have any hands, and 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 then then they would chop off their head to show that the head was gone. They're they're worthless. They're powerless. And so God chops off this the, the head and the hands, and He puts it on the the threshold. It, it, it just, I, I'm amazed that the priests just, they walk in and they spin the story, right? We know what spin is, right, when news gets spun or something like that. They spin it, and they turn it into a, a new tradition, right? You don't step on the, the threshold, right? Step on a crack, they break that they back, right? So they, every time they go in, they have to hop over the threshold. <laughs> it, it's amazing how easily the world can overlook the miraculous and spin it into something that binds its followers. Look at the beautiful night sky. Look at the stars. Aren't they beautiful? Oh, well, those stars represent what month you were born in and determine how you act and who you should marry, what's going to happen to you today, and, and uh, your, your temperament. Oh, wow, look at all of creation. Look at the, the birds and the, the trees and the flowers. And, and uh, it's Shark Week, right? Look at the sharks. I love Shark Week. Oh, that's just a culmination of billions and trillions of biological errors, right? It accidentally created something that we can't even explain today. With all of our technology and all of our computers, we still can't figure out how some things work. Did anybody read the story this week about the necro spiders? It's something like you wish these scientists would watch a horror movie at one point in time, right, where the world gets overrun. But they took these spiders, and what's the default position of a dead spider? Like this, right? It curls up, its legs go like this. That's the default position. And they figured out they could jam a needle into it and shove it full of hydraulic fluid, and the the legs go like this. right? And then they drop it down, and they put it over something, and they suck the hydraulic fluid back out, and the legs go And they could pick up something 100 times the weight of the spider just using the spider's clinch. When it's dead, right? They don't know how, they don't know how to replicate it, but now they're, they're, they're looking at creation this, this created spider and they're Frankensteining it. Basically, it's amazing how we can rationalize away God. It's amazing how we can look at that and say, no, It's just accidents, lots and lots and lots and lots of accidents. But God can't be ignored. Right? We, can, we can prop up our idols, and we can pick them up again when they fall over. And you, you can see people, they stand out there, well, if God's real, then let him strike me dead right now. <laughs> and they stand there, and nothing happens. right see, Your God isn't real. He didn't do what I told him to. And judgment doesn't come until it does. And that's when the world realizes that our God is a terrible God scripture, and then I'll explain. Back to verse 6. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smoked them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. The hand of the Lord was heavy. The Hebrew word for heavy is kabod. Right? And it's an interesting word, because as a, a, as you use it, the definition changes, right? If you use it as a noun, kabod means glory, or honor, or the divine presence. Think Phineas' wife. Remember, when she, she was dying, she named her son, abad, right? Meaning no glory. But as a verb, kabod means something just a little bit different. It means to become heavy or weighty, like out of judgment, or honored and glorified. Right? So we can see that our writer here has a bit of skill. After all, the ark is considered the honor and glory, the glory of God by the Israelite people, right? And here we see the glory of God being heavy on these people. Heavy. And here is where we see the terribleness of God. And we're not saying terrible like he's bad at being God, right? Not terrible like uh, like that, but more like as an awesome. And not awesome like cool dude, awesome. But more like awesome, like imagine you're one of the little guys on, on in Tokyo when Godzilla comes on, right, And he's like smashing the buildings and he's breathing fire, right? And he steps over the top and you see the big foot goes out that's awesome, right? You're terrified. He sneezes and you're gone, right? That's terrible. That's our God. Do you know if our God stopped controlling the universe for one second? We'd all be gone. If he just went it would all be gone. Look at Job with me here. Just for a second. Job 38 we're going to go to verse 31. Oops, I'm going backwards. Sorry. Job 38 there we go. Starting in verse 31. Uh, if you're not familiar with Job, he has lost everything. He's lost his family. He's lost his, um, his business. He's, he was very rich. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost his health. He's sitting in a pile of ash scraping at wounds on him uh, with a piece of pottery. right? And he's questioning. He's like, God, he doesn't question God, but he's saying, God, why is this happening? I don't understand it. And he, he, the only thing that God didn't take from Job was his wife which normally, like in my circumstance, that would be a good thing. In his circumstance, it was a bad thing because she walked out and said, curse God and die. Great wife, right? So Job's friends show up, and they start giving him (laughs) terrible counsel. And finally, God steps in. He's like, hey, shush. And he turns to Job, and he says, gird your loins like a man because I'm about to drop this. I'm about to explain this. Not why, but I'm about to explain who I am. And I'm not going to take the... the. It's a couple chapters long, right? But I just want to take this little chunk here. Starting in verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Do you realize what God's talking about there? Stars. And not just stars, but constellations of stars, whole constellations, big balls of, of burning superheated gas flying through the, the universe at speeds that we can't even comprehend with, with like, gravity that, that we can't comprehend that's, that's holding these huge planetary forces and stars, it's holding them together. And God controls all of it. Our God is Terrible. People go through life with their little plastic cars that shatter when we bump into each other. and our houses that fall over in an earthquake. And money, either paper or electronic, it doesn't matter. Recessions and wars destroy them both. And they look at the little stupid knickknacks around them and they say, these, these are the things that I will worship. And then tragedy hits. And instead of looking around and saying, there's something bigger than me out there, there's something bigger than all this, I need to figure it out, they put their idol and they put it back on the shelf. And they keep going like this until, just like our Philistine friends here, God's heavy hand is against them. Verse 7 says, when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain for us, for his hand is severe. Severe indicating divine judgment here. It wasn't just like his hand is severe. They're saying, this God is judging us. Severe on us and on Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them. And I'm just going to kind of skim through this because I don't want to take too much time there. But they bring them all together and they say, what are we going to do with this? And they say, uh, send it to Gath. right? And I'm pretty sure that everybody in that council there didn't know anybody in Gath. Because right? why would you send this thing someplace where you knew somebody, you liked somebody. Maybe they they knew somebody that they didn't like, I don't know. They send it to Gath. The same thing happens in Gath. Tumors, confusion, death. So they say, well, let's send it to Hekron, right? And the Hecronites, by now, they've heard what's going on there, Mm -hmm. because the Ark was there for seven months, so they've heard about this. And they see the Ark coming in, and they're like, oh, no. They brought the Ark of God to Israel around to kill us and our people. So they gather all the lords of the Philistines together, and they say, get this thing out of here. We don't want it here. We're all going to die. And then verse 12, and the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Our God is terrible. And this little flex here in verse 5, or in the last five verses there, it's just a little taste. It's nothing compared to what happens at the end of history. Turn with me, if you went to Revelation 6. Revelation 6, we're going to start with verse 12. At this point in the biblical timeline of, of Revelation here, uh, the rapture has already occurred. If you want to read about that, you can look at 1 Thessalonians 4. You can, you can see how uh, we're we'll snatched out of the, of the, of the world. Um, Christians are gone, and judgments start. And there's, there's seal judgments, and then there's trumpet judgments, and then there's bowl judgments, seven judgments each. And they're all horrible, terrible. Judgments, Starting in verse uh, 12 there in chapter 6. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave, and free man, hid themselves in caves, and among rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains, and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? How do we deal with something? I mean, by the time the sixth seal is open, a quarter of the population of the world is gone. right? If this happened today, that would be two billion people. That's the populations of the U.S., Indonesia, and China. All of them dead. Not to mention all the Christians that have just disappeared. How do you deal with that as a non-believer? How do you get over that? Well, it just so happens that there's nothing new under the sun. You see, non-believers do what Philistines did. Look at uh, verse one in chapter six. Get you there? Verse one, chapter six. Now, the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines for seven months, and I don't have time to go over all this. I'll skim it for you. Go home and read it. That's your homework, right? But they say we're going to send it back. But they they call the, the diviners out and they say, and the priests, and they say, "What do we do?" And they say, "Don't send it back empty." Right? This this God is obviously Very powerful. You don't want to make them even more angry. So they say, we're going to make uh, images. We're going to make golden mice. they are going to put five of them in there, one for each of the Philistine lords. And then we're going to make golden tumors. I don't know. Who did they call? Hey, uh, let me me sketch that tumor real quick right there. I I want to make a copy of it right out of gold. I want it to be. Anyway, they get those, and they stick them in the ark. Right? And then they say at the end of verse 5, perhaps, they don't even know this is true, right? they just say, perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods and your land. And we look at this and it's complete heresy. right? They, first of all, they called uh, diviners over, right, which is completely against the, the Bible. Deuteronomy 18, 9-19. You can look that up. Deuteronomy 18, 9-19. Uh, second, does anybody remember the second commandment? Exodus 24, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under, under the earth. But this is how the world seeks to appease God. It was a mishmash of religiosity by sending out good vibrations and happy thoughts to the universe. All with the futile hope of avoiding the heavy hand of God. As we continue in verse six, why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he had severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? This is not the first time that the, the Philistines have mentioned this. They mentioned it in the battle when the Ark came in. Remember, they're like, oh, they brought the gods that got them out of Egypt. They knew about this. And so in here, you're gonna see a, a word, and, and I don't have time to really dig down into it, but they actually, they. They exodus the ark. right? They got it back into Israel. Continuing in verse 7. Right? Now, there, now therefore, take and prepare a new cart, two milk cows, on which there's never been a yoke. Hinch the cows to the cart. Take the calves home and away from them. They're going to put the, the ark in there and the articles of gold. And then they say, watch if it goes up by way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Did stuff like that happen a lot back then? I just, I really want to ask them there. Is, is it usual that a box shows up and people get tumors and confused and die? Doesn't make much sense. But they, 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 decide they're going to take these cows, and it makes sense what they're thinking there, right? If, if, if you're not godly, you're like if if you're just living in the world, you say, well, okay, we're going to take two cows, and they're milk cows to start off with. Do milk cows pull carts? Not usually. You don't use milk cows for carts, you use milk cows for milk, right? And so they're going to take them, and we're, we're going to get the ones that just had calves, and we're going to take their calves away from them. Don't do that, by the way. Mm-hmm. I know that some of you here are city slickers, and some of you here are country folk. Uh, I grew up in the country, and we, we were, uh, uh, we had all the little calves separated from the mama cows, and they were, they were doing the castration and the, the branding of the, the male calves. And I watched a mother cow jump over a six-foot fence to get to her calf. Now you've seen how big cows are. It was, a little, it was a little. I was like this big and I'm pretty scared, right? And it didn't really jump. It just kind of jumped over it and it was like flopped over the fence. And you know, you don't separate a calf from a mother cow. That's the whole point. And they say we're going to put it on a cart. You don't just magically hook an animal to a cart and then pull. This isn't Disney, right? You know, if you hook a cow that's never had a cart hooked up to it, it's it's just gonna go, what in the world's going on here? Maybe it'll get freaked out and break your cart apart, right? So they're gonna take two of them, they're gonna take their calves away, they're gonna they're gonna lash them to this cart, and then they're gonna say, if it goes up to Israel, then we know it was the, the Israelites God that did this. And then they follow them, right? These men they did it, they hooked the cows up, and they follow them, and the cows went straight for best for And no, no to the left, no to the right, do not pass 200, do not collect, not pass no, do not collect 200, right? They were gone, and they went straight to Beth Shemesh. It would have been interesting to see that, right? (laughs) Cows walking along, and all these Philistine lords are walking along behind them. Slow procession, seven miles up into the mountains there. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark, and they were glad to see it. Philistines hang out a little while longer to see what happens to the ark. But now the ark is back in the hand of the Israelites. And not just any Israelites. Look at, look at verse 14. The ark came into the field of Joshua, the Beshemite, Joshua, you remember that guy that led the Israelites back into the promised land? That, that guy, Joshua, right? The Beshemite. Shemite. And uh, the Beshemites, uh, if you remember, when they came into the promised land, the Levites got special towns set up because they weren't supposed to work. They were supposed to praise God, right? They were supposed to be priests and do all that stuff. So Beth, Beth was full of priests. That was a Levitical town, okay? And when it gets into this town, and um, there was a large stone there, so they split apart the wood of the carp, offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark, and the box uh, that was in it, which were in the articles of gold and everything, and they set it up on the big rock there. And the Philistines go... A city full of Levites, and nowhere in the the Torah does it ever say you're supposed to sacrifice a female cow. What do you sacrifice? A bull, right? And what are you supposed to do with that ark? If you remember, when they were in the in the wilderness, there was a special team, the Levites, that moved the ark, right? And then there was a special team that set up the tabernacle, and they weren't even supposed to see the ark. It was only the Levites. It was to be honored, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's holy. He was to be honored. They should have known. They should have known, but this is the case in false worship, right? Theology is sacrificed for numbers. It doesn't it's it's not like God looks at a church and goes, Oh, they've got two thousand people there. Right? They've got a lot of people there. They're doing good things. It's not the way it works. Doesn't matter if there's two of us in the same room. God wants our worship to be respectful and holy. And he gives us guidelines because he loves us. Right? These aren't rules like, oh, man, can't any fun. these are guidelines because God wants us to live within them so that we can be with him. I don't have time. I was hoping I could get to it, but I don't have time. But your your uh, homework this week, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, start in verse 23. You've heard it before, right? It's when we would do the Lord's Supper, therefore who eats the bread drinks the cup of the Lord, right? Starting in verse 27, Paul is talking about those that eat it in an unworthy manner, right? Without examining themselves. And, and there's judgment when they don't. For this reason, in verse 30, for this reason, many among you are sick and weak, and some of you have fallen asleep. That's just another name of death, right? you are saying they died. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Right worship of our God is vital. And to prove my point, let's read in verse 17. They had the golden tumors, each one for each Lord, and the golden mice. They took it, they set it on a large stone. Numbers 19, he struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of the people, 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? If you're reading out of a different translation, let's say the ESV or the NIV, um, some of the newer translations, yours might say 70 men. right? And it, there was a little bit of, of confusion there. In the Masoretic text, the thing that we translate our Bible from, it says 50,070 men. In the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of that that they did um, a, later, obviously, than the Masoretic text, it says 50,070 men. But Josephus, he was a, an Israelite uh, or Jewish uh, historian, looked at that and said, there is no way there was 50,000 people in that little dinky town of Bethshemesh. So he changed it to 70. And that's why some of our newer translations say 70 men. I personally believe it's 50,070 because that's what the Masoretic text said. That's what we believe in, right? And it, it's, I believe it for a number of reasons. Obviously, it's in the Masoretic text. It's in the Greek Septuagint. I believe that. Two, the phrase, great slaughter, right? There was a great slaughter. It's not used lightly. It's not like five dudes died. It was a great slaughter. It's when there's thousands of deaths, right? And three, it would not be inconceivable that people, upon hearing of the return of the Ark, would flock to Beth Semesh to see the Ark return, right? And the picture there that you would get then is how many people died when the Philistines attacked? Thirty thousand. How many people died when God was there and they didn't worship Him properly? Fifty thousand. Right? You don't need to worry about the world. We don't need to worry about China or or Russia or we need to worry about God. God will handle the rest. So that this group of, of Levites, right, this town of Levites is supposed to be. Super, I mean it'd be like, I don't know, I, I don't really have a big comparison, but maybe like John MacArthur's church, right? He's got like several thousand people down there, right? It's a big church, it's it's supposed to be godly. It'd be it'd be like them saying, What are we supposed to do with the ark? Send it to Brentwood Bible Fellowship. Right? <laughs> got some goofy pastor here, been a pastor for like three months, right? John MacArthur saying that? But that's what it would be like. Because then they say, they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kirath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. From that day, from the day that the ark remained in Kirath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after. So he goes from this town of, of priests and Levites that should have known the right thing, and they send him to this dinky little town that really doesn't have any historical significance. And the guy that's supposed to take care of it is Eleazar, which is just—it's kind of like calling somebody pastor, right? It was just a common term for a priest. So it's not—it's nobody of any great renown, right? And they send it to these these country bumpkins, basically, right? away from the established religion, the guys that had scrolls with the Torah and everything. And they worship it correctly. But their heart's in the right place. And it stays there for 20 years. And we'll read later on, David actually goes and gets it and brings it to Jerusalem, because they're being blessed there. Right worship, honest worship, heart worship is going on there. And God is blessing them. And David says, we need to bring that to the whole country. So he brings it to Jerusalem, to the capital, right? We worship a terrible God, which would be terrifying if he wasn't also a good God. A God who, although he's terrifying, offered all who would believe in the atoning death of his son Jesus Christ salvation. A God that would pour all of the wrath that was due for all of our sins, and he would take it and he would pour it onto His Son for three hours. Just pour it on. If you're here and you think that you've defied God, or that God has somehow been defeated in your life, and you're doing just fine on your own, or maybe you've tried it the world's way, but you've realized that God is a terrible God, and that his enemy someday will feel the wrath of God, in the form of a never-ending torment in hell, and you've tried to appease them with good deeds or false religions, but deep down you know you're in danger, that your worship is false, fruitless, and therefore worthless. But now, But now, if you're ready to turn to Christ, to make him your savior, that terrible God will take all the wrath that was due for you all of that terribleness and give it to Jesus. I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to sing one more song. As we're singing that last song, if you want to come up and and talk to me about Jesus, I'd love to share him with you. I'd love to get you started down that path. If you want to come down and just pray, just spend some time praying, feel free. If you want me to pray with you, I will. Just let me know. But don't listen to this. Don't listen to this today if you're a non-believer. Don't listen to this and say, well, that's not me. (laughs) Suck to be them. (laughs) It's all of us. And unless we turn to Christ, we will see how terrible God can be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word that doesn't change. Thank you for the truth that is in your scripture. Lord, thank you that although you are a terrible God... Terrible, meaning to be feared or to be revered. Lord, you are a good God. And your love overwhelms your terribleness in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if someone's here today that hasn't made a decision, hasn't made Christ Lord in their life, that you would convict them, that you would bring them to you, Lord, so that they could see your love. They can see how you have washed over all of the wrath that was due us. And We thank you for that. We pray that as we go our separate ways today, that we would be changed people, that we would impact our community, impact our country, impact our homes, or that we wouldn't just walk away and forget what we look like immediately. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen.